Have you ever lost a friend simply because you thought differently? Did you discover that you suddenly became a non-entity in their eyes? And moreover, did your former friend speak ill of you? Well, my guest today has experienced all of those things by multiples and on a national scale. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. On my life, watching America. On my life, it's panic in America. Oh, 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 it's trouble in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Dave Rubin was an avid leftist with a national progressive platform on the Young Turks and on a gay-based show on Sirius XM. All things seemed good and stable for Rubin until he developed serious doubts about his political premises. He noticed that those who prided themselves on being tolerant were often, in truth, anything but that. After an encounter with Larry Elder on his own show, The Rubin Report, Rubin found himself intellectually bruised and factually corrected by an African-American voice. After some soul-searching, Rubin decided to leave the left and thereby took many former progressives with him. I think in general we use these words way too easily. Everyone that we disagree with is a racist and a homophobe and Islamophobe and a bigot. It's just it's just silly, it's it's lazy thinking and I think it gets us nowhere. Dave Rubin is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Don't Burn This Book. It's easy to identify. It's black writing on white with a non-struck match going across it diagonally. Most of you will know him, of course, from the Rubin Report. And prior to that, as one of the Young Turks and also from Sirius XM's OutQ channel, he's gay, he's married, has a husband, he's Jewish, he's an atheist, and one of the most interesting voices in any form or forum in America today. It is my great pleasure to welcome Dave Rubin to Watching America. Welcome, David. Alan, it's a pleasure to be with you. I have to say, I've done probably 200 interviews in the last three or four days. I mean, it's just been, you know, 30 or 40 a day. And that might have been the most enjoyable intro I've heard the entire time. Oh, you're extremely magnanimous and kind. I, I do appreciate it. Well, let's get into <laughs> <I'm> very it. very professional. <laughs> you were born in New York City and then eventually, about the age of seven or earlier, moved out to the island, whereupon one day you were watching Bill Cosby. And somehow you entertained the idea of pursuing perhaps stand-up comedy, which which you did for a number of years, but with no pun intended, what went wrong and what went right? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I was born in, in Brooklyn, which is obviously a borough of New York City, one of the one of the main boroughs. And when people think of Brooklyn now, they think of it as this sort of ultra chic and expensive hipster neighborhood um, that really is, is sort of nothing like the roots of Brooklyn. Brooklyn, of course, was once, you know, the home of if you came to America in the 40s from wherever, you know, 40s or 50s, wherever your family came from, whether they were Irish or Italian or Greek or Jewish or Hispanic, whatever it was, it was this incredible mix. My family, in many ways, is exactly what the American dream is. It was my great-grandparents who came here. They made a better life for my grandparents than my father and my mother. Finally got us out of the city and took us to Long Island to the suburbs. And uh, and I had a fairly good upbringing and went to decent schools. And I went to State University of New York at Binghamton. And then I did stand up in New York for about 12 years. And it, and I would say it came with all of the successes and, and failures of that. You know, stand up is a pretty brutal uh, art form to Absolutely. have to be in because, yes. you know, it, it's, and I never you know, it's funny, even though I'm not particularly known as a stand up, you know, I never found the being funny part that hard. Actually, what I found was and most comics, I think, agree with this is that the part that was hard was the light. Because, you know, to do stand-up, it's not like that you just write a couple of jokes and they say, okay, come on stage, let's do it. You know, you got to hand out tickets. I stood on street corners yes. in Times Square yeah. 
for six six nights a week, often two hours a night for about five years, handing out tickets just so that you could get stage time, not even that you were going to get paid. And we did it in you know rain nor sleet nor snow. We were out there. Uh, there was one night where there was a crazy nor'easter in New York City, and it was you know below zero, and they're telling everybody not to be outside. And I went out there and I put on two pairs of socks and two pairs of pants just so I could hopefully get a little stage time. And my phone rang as I'm standing in Times Square and it was my roommate, my roommate, Mike. And he said, Dave, you know, I'm watching the Channel 11 news right now. And there's a reporter in Times Square telling people not to be outside and that they're closing Times Square. And I see you standing behind him, handing out tickets <laughs> to a comedy show. On WPIX. On, on WPIX, Channel 11. There uh, you go. Yeah. So, uh, so that sort of life, um, you know, I, in many ways, that that answers your question about sort of the success and failures, because if you just do it, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, now I actually, you know, I do a couple stand up gigs a year and I can fortunately, because I've succeeded in other realms, I can sell out clubs and I just go out there to have fun. And I, it's not very traditional stand up. I, I really I do a lot of crowd work and I, I do Q&A's and kind of fun stuff. Um but I think that the putting in the work to do it, whatever it is, wherever you end up, you know, a lot of comics end up as writers or yes. they end up uh, as all, all sorts of things that have nothing to do with, you know, the dream of being sort of like an HBO George Carlin stand up. But I think just the dedication and the work, I look back on it and I think, man, I don't know how I did it. I don't know how I did it. And I guess that's why. When you're young, you do you do some crazy things, and then when you get older, you go, "Holy cow, that that was a real experience." Well, it's so incredibly brutal because, first of all, just to get twenty minutes or even twelve minutes takes months upon months upon months, and then once you do get a crack at it, there's always those entities out there like the Comedy Channel uh, who gobble up your material, you know. And you can only go on, you know, at, back in the day. No one does it anymore, really. But back in the day, if you were going to go on Leno or Carson before that, um, you know, you used half your material trying to expose yourself to America. And it was just absolutely, you know, uh, a demanding experience to try and write new material all the time. Carlin did it, you know, Robert Klein, people like that, but extremely hard. You're, you're, let me just say one other thing on that, because you're really speaking my language right now. You know, that, that thing of, you know, you get your five minutes. And then I, I was born in 76. So when Carson retired, in, I think it was in 92, I was about yes. 16 years old or so. And I remember watching at the end, and um, and I actually think, although I didn't see, obviously, the many, many years of Carson, I think some of my style actually did come from Johnny Carson, because when I watched him, I thought, here's just a nice man. <laughs> That's really what I thought of him. <laughs> right. I thought yeah. I thought he was he was obviously funny, but he struck me as a nice man. And I've read all the stuff that people say about him, you know, behind, how he was behind the camera and whatever. And that that is what it is. But I thought the man that I saw sitting there, it was like, he didn't strike me as like a TV star. He was just this nice man who kind of invited people into into his studio and, and they chatted. And, and, you know, as you were alluding to, it's like if you made it on that show and you sat down with Johnny, your career was golden, whether it was Roseanne Barr or Ellen DeGeneres or Jerry Seinfeld or Richard Lewis or Louis Anderson, the list goes on and on. And I like to think that I, I picked up a little a little something from him, even though it was really before my stand-up years. Well, I can even hear it in the rhythm of your voice now. It's not just a northeastern experience that you're expressing here. I mean, but it is there is a rhythm to your delivery, which you see, although with very poignant pauses on the Rubin Report, but it's all there. Mm -hmm. And you could even go back and look at your old tapes from the Young Turks, and, and it's evident as well. So, I mean, it, it stead you well to go through those difficult years. Perhaps not as ominous as the Zabruder film of Dealey Plaza, but nonetheless, recorded <laughs> history was Dave Rubin, yourself, with one Larry Elder, in which, for all who want to see it, is the videoed display of a political epiphany for you. Yes. Much to your credit, you let it go. You didn't edit it. Now, I'm going to play a clip from it now, and, uh, and then we'll comment on it afterwards. Here we go. This is um, my guest, Dave Rubin on his own show, The Rubin Report, with Larry Elder, the quintessential, most important moment. Here we go. You wouldn't not acknowledge that there are some systemic issues. Give me the most blatant racist example you can come up with right now. Cops are, that, that cops are more willing 
to shoot if the uh, perpetrator is black What's your data than for, white. What's your basis for saying that? Last year- the, Well, look, I know a lot of people would say, look what's going on in Chicago. I, I, I know what they would say. Yeah. I'm talking about what the facts are. 965 people were shot by cops last, last year and killed. 4% of them were white cops shooting unarmed blacks. Uh, in Chicago, which is a third black, a third white, and a third Hispanic, 70% of the homicides are black on black. Half the homicides in this country are committed by and against black people. Last year, there were 14,000 homicides. Half of them were black, 96% of them black on black. So it's funny, I find myself caught in between this a little bit as a liberal where I want to always try to defend the other. So in this case, the other being black people, I, I'm always sympathetic to that. And that, uh, yeah, yeah, at the same time, I hear you laying out a pretty solid well, case. Well, I, I, so, I asked you to name the most important uh, example of racism and you gave white cops going after black people. And I, and I told you, gave you the facts for that. So that's nonsense, so what, you must have something else. What else is it? Uh, what was going through your mind when that happened? I got to tell you, you know, even though I wrote about that in the book and I've obviously seen the clip and I lived through the clip, you know, it's kind of painful for me to to hear that because I don't know how many people can truly say that their best and worst professional moment were at the exact same time. I mean, that's got to be pretty rare. Yes. But I can honestly I can honestly say that because, look, it was my worst moment because as an interviewer, I went in with some sort of facts that seemed evident just by their existence in the first place. And what Larry then did was use facts and information to really level me. So, so at that level, it was my worst moment. But what happened after, I think, was my best moment, which was at the time we were, it was before my show was independent, we were at Order TV, and we had a fairly big uh, staff of production people and directors and that sort of thing. And I went into the control room and, bef and I was kind of embarrassed. I mean, I didn't even want the camera guys to look at me. But when I opened the door, before I even got a chance to say anything, one of the producers said to me, don't worry, we're going to cut that, you know, before we put it on YouTube. And my initial reaction was just like, no, that was it. Like, what kind of interviewer am I yeah. if yeah. at the moment, at the moment it got good, at the moment it got real, even though it was egg in my face, if we cut that, then then I don't know what I'm doing for a living. I, I don't know why I'm even doing this. I should do something else altogether. And that just seemed very obvious to me. And it's funny because people give me so much credit for it. And, they should. They should. And and I well, I, I suppose, I guess in retrospect, if I wasn't me, maybe I'd be giving me credit for it. But it just It's integrity. Right, really. I mean, this integrity, that's, that's the key word that surmises the whole thing. So what was interesting about that was when uh, two, a day or two went by and we posted the clip, uh, and it started getting cloned across YouTube, and that's when people grab clips and they retitle them. And it was something like Larry Elder in capital letters destroys Libtard or, you know, crush, crushes, crushes Dave Rubin and the rest of it. And I saw all these clips in there, and they're all getting hundreds of thousands and millions of views. And at first I was embarrassed, and I was like, oh, why did I do this to myself? And then I started looking in the comment section, and, and I don't recommend anyone really ever look at the comment section on YouTube. But I jumped in there, and what I saw was something that I think still to this day is pretty amazing and really did help me, uh, you know, sort of change my, my uh, philosophy was that suddenly people were like, holy cow, I have never seen something like this before. Yes. Ruben didn't, didn't lie, didn't cut this. It's obvious it wasn't aired live. He took the hit, and, and he's learning. And yes. I think at that moment when I saw enough of those, I thought, okay. Now I know what I have to continue doing. Then it became obvious to me. So before that, whether it was integrity or naivete or whatever it may have been, I think from that point forward, it, it came with intent, which was I'm going to do the best I can to put the most truth out in the world, regardless of how it makes me look. And, and you know, I've taken the slings and, and arrows for that. I was really struck by the fact that you said that when you toured with Jordan Peterson, that you were in Britain and elsewhere, and you would have uh, black men come up to you, gay black men, who would say, mm -hmm. in point of fact, you know, well, you know, Dave, I'm, I'm out of the closet, but I'm kind of in the closet when it comes to being a black conservative, a la Candace Owens, Kanye West to a degree, David Webb, etc. Mm -hmm. I got a lot of that, and I still get a lot of that to this day, almost, almost everywhere that I speak. You know, unfortunately, we're all stuck in our homes right this moment, but when I go to colleges, especially... Um, it's, you know, and it's not, I do get it from, from a lot of young black men, but I get it from all, you know, all sorts of ethnicities and everything else that basically people are trapped in the political closet that, you know, when we think about the closet, you know, most of us think about that in terms of sexuality. And that's sure. not to say that coming out of the closet 
as a, as a gay person or whatever it might be. That's not to diminish that. Now, obviously things have changed. You know, I'm a child of the eighties really. And, and I grew up in my formative years in the nineties, I was closeted until my mid twenties. And I, I sort of have some of the scars of that, that it took me so long to do, but you know, I, I don't have regrets in life because I got to where I'm supposed to be, which is where I'm at right now. So that's okay. But you know, Right now, if you're a 13-year-old kid or something like that, and you come out of the closet, in most cases, you will be wholly embraced. Now, your parents may be confused for a little while, and maybe you do come from a religious background of one sort or another where there's going to be some tension for a while. But in most cases, your friends will accept you. Mm-hmm. You know, the ship, has, the ship has sailed on sort of the outward, the outward fear of gay. Now, I, ironically... The, the political closet is very different. When you come out of the political closet, and what I mean by this, in most cases, this means you're just saying you're not a lefty anymore. It doesn't mean you're right. saying you're, right. A right, you're a conservative or a libertarian or something like that. You're just saying, hey, I'm not like a complete, you know, guide in wool lefty that I buy into all 10 of these things. There's a couple things here that don't really make sense, because by the way, that's all I started doing. You know, you can watch videos of mine from five or six years ago where I was a Bernie supporter and I was saying, hey, liberals, lefties, you know, we have to start standing for free speech again. We have to be the ones defending the college campuses and being for open inquiry. So I really was doing it as a lefty. And what happened was I was shocked, actually, the amount of venom I got from the left. And then the bigger shock happened, which was the people on the right kept going, hey, you're okay, and you don't think we're all bigots and racist? Would you, would you like to sit down and talk and agree to disagree? And that type of world shift, it's very hard to go from calling everybody bigots and racist, which I was never really truly big on that, but I, I can't say that I had nothing to do with it. I was part of the Young Turks um, network. Uh, but in effect, it's really hard to go from one ideology and then suddenly look the other way and go, whoa, maybe not only was I potentially wrong, but the people that I've been slamming and slurring, maybe they're not as bad as I think they are. And in, in certain way, maybe they're actually my ideological um, in kind. That, that's a really tough position to hold. And that's why right now I, I truly believe that the biggest growing political movement in the United States, and in many ways, this is probably in the UK and in a lot of Western countries, is sort of the disaffected lefty that's not sure what to do with themselves. I think you guys saw a version of this, which is why Corbyn and Labour got crushed so badly. It's like if the liberals, right. and I know you yeah. guys, when I use some of these words, it's a little bit different from a UK perspective to an American perspective. But if the traditional liberals had been more okay with the far leftism of Corbyn, he would have won. But they basically said, no, that thing is kind of crazy. Precisely. And we're, we're, we're really dealing with a, a very scary version of that in the United States right now, because nobody knows what the Democratic Party is anymore. Is it the party of giant government and socialism and collectivism and sort of Bernie Sanders, AOC, or is there some tiny vestige of a sane Democrat left? And I think that that's what they're trying to sell us with Biden, um, but without getting too lost in, in that. I mean, Biden, between the cognitive problems, and it's very unclear to, as to what he actually stands for, I just think he's the last stopgap before the whole thing breaks down. This is Watching America on WHRV. We'll be right back. about the second chapter of your book. Um, I'm speaking with Dave Rubin, the author of Don't Burn This Book, and you're listening to Watching America. In chapter two, the title of it is Years of Self-Deception. How did you fall into the deception? And was there any moment of cognizance, if you will, where you said, maybe I'm lying to myself? Uh, You know, it's a good question. And this really was the hardest part for me to write about because, you know, I'm very comfortable talking about politics and my philosophies and current events and things like that. that. That's what I love to do. And I think when you do that, if you do that effectively, you do show who you are. But then to write this other part about a time in my life when I wasn't in a great spot and anyone that is closeted knows what this is. You know, when you're closeted, there's only room for one in there. And really what that means is that you're, you're left with your own thoughts. 
And, you know, we as humans, it's funny, we're socially distancing right now, but we're social creatures. The only way you can map, the only way you can map what is real is by talking to other people, by sharing what you think and then hearing what they think. You can actually, you can actually sort of put some sense into reality and then figure out what, what it is that you want. What are you doing here? Why are you here? All of these things. And when you're in the closet, you know, I would also liken it to imagine if a painter just said, uh, you know, I'm not going to use blue. It's just a color I'm just not going to use. And in many ways, that's what the closet is like. It's like you have a full set of emotions, but you just set aside some emotions. And what that will do from a painter's perspective, of course, you're, you're going to hamper your art. You're not using all of the, the tools and colors available. And as a human, you know, you're, you're not using your full set of emotions. So it's funny because when I, when I finally did come out and I tell the story, uh, which sounds almost fictitious, but it's, it's absolutely true. I mean, the first person that I came out to uh, was my friend Mike, who was a, an openly gay comic, and we were in Times Square in the subway station. Really, it's, in many ways, you could say that's the center of the world. Mm. Uh, and, it, and it was 12.30 a.m. on September 11th, 2001, only seven or so hours you know, before the, the attack was about to happen. And I came out to him, and he, he didn't realize that this was this massive thing for me. He thought, I think, that I was out already to many people, and it was just like one other person. But he basically said, oh, okay, that's great, and he left. And I then got on the subway and I went to sleep. And then when I woke up, uh, America was under attack. My my dad worked in Midtown Manhattan, and uh, he could see the tower from uh, he could see the tower one from his window. And then he saw the second plane hit, and he called me and woke me up. And and I know it sounds crazy, but I genuinely thought it had something to do with me. I had held this secret in this evil, rotten thing about myself for so long, and finally I had unleashed it to the world. And the world had struck back, and it's crazy to sound. You know, it's, so I know like what a, it sounds a seis- like. Seismic potency. Yeah, that that's genuinely the world responded to me releasing this thing, and that's what I mean that. when I say well, well, that's what I mean when I yeah. say that there's only room for one because you don't have anyone to map anything against. So anything you think might be true or it might be false, and what I have found uh, both from the the closet related to sexuality as well as the closet related to politics is the more that you tell people this is who I am this is what I think maybe I'm not right about everything you know maybe I'm not exactly who you think I am I'm trying to figure it out too as the more that you do that the better the world becomes and the saner the world becomes so you know fortunately over the few months following that which was a pretty uh, a pretty horrific time to be in New York City I, I was able to have some serious conversations with friends and family, and I was able to get myself out of that that really horrible place. Did you find that coming out of the closet sexually um, was a good good prep, if you will, for for what was going to happen politically? Was there a parallel? Um, well, I think that there probably was a parallel in that for the year before I really came out politically, I had been having these thoughts and not sharing them. And that, so I was very, I was very aware of that, what that feeling is like. You know, we, we all know this when we're at dinner with friends mm. and let's say one of our friends is really politically passionate and, you know, really is, is uh, fiery and everything else. And it's like, you may not agree with them, but you just don't want to bring it up because you don't want to get into it. Or you're trying to take a night off of politics. Yes. Or uh, by the way, this doesn't, this doesn't only come in a political context. You, you could have a friend who has serious thoughts, you know, seriously passionate thoughts about, about basketball or cricket or whatever else, and you just don't want to do it that night. And I had had about a year of my life where I had been thinking all of this stuff, saying there's something wrong with the progressive ideology. It cannot be that everyone we disagree with is a racist and a bigot. It cannot, the, the equation doesn't work. It can't be that we are so right and, and, and it's obvious and we're morally good and everyone against us is evil and horrible and self-hating and a bigot. It just doesn't work. But it, it really, so that is where the closet part kicks in because it's like you start having thoughts, but we all know this. The second you have a thought for the first time, that you usually don't blurt it out the first time. Right. And it took yeah. me, it took me about a year. Um, and it really, I, I mentioned three wake up moments, but it was the, it was the moment that Ben Affleck was on real time. Uh, with Bill Maher and Sam Harris was the guest, and, and Affleck called them gross and racist as they tried to discuss the difference between ideas and people. And when that happened, that really broke it for me because it was a real-world example of everything I had been thinking. Because Affleck, 
was overly emotional. He was red in the face. He was angry. He used very inflammatory language. And on the other side of the argument was, you know, Bill Maher, who's been our biggest lefty liberal in America for 30 years, and this mild-mannered neuroscientist named Sam Harris, who I didn't even know at the time. And what they were trying to explain is we have to be able to criticize ideas, meaning you could criticize the Old Testament. Nobody would say you hate all Jews. Or you could criticize the Democratic Party platform. Nobody would say you hate all Democrats. Uh, and in this case, they happened to be talking about Islam. And the point was, of course, you could criticize the ideas of the Quran, but you would never want to be bigoted towards people. And as they tried to explain something that we all know that's true, it's complex, but it's true. Yes. Affleck said, you, Affleck said you're gross and racist. And that moment, it, it lit the light bulb in my head because I thought, whoa, that's what I've been thinking. And I couldn't I didn't have a real world example of it. And and so that, as you may have noticed, I. Uh, I mentioned Ben Affleck right at the top of the book. He right. gets the dedication right. because I thank him for doing that because had he not been so boisterous and over the top, perhaps I never would have woke up. The thing that is disturbing is his desire to have people be monolithic in their politics. Uh, and your friend Peter Boghossian has decried and, and said that he, he fears the loss of nuance. For instance, you mentioned Bill Maher. He's a very complex person. He's flip-floppy all over the place. And I don't mean he's cap uh, uh, capricious in his political thought, but you mm -hmm. can't always pin him down. Part of the reason I find him attractive, part of the reason I find you attractive, or, 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 or Ben Shapiro. I like people who are nuanced in particular areas, and you can't check off all the boxes. Um, one of the most interesting couplings in, to be found in visual form anywhere is you with Ben Shapiro. Dave Rubin, mm -hmm. atheist. Ben Shapiro, conservative Jew. Uh, you, atheist Jew. Uh, Dave Rubin, pro-choice. Ben Shapiro, pro-life. Uh, you obviously a gay man. He's straight. And yet there is this commonality of spirit and engagement and appreciation for each other, which many just don't get. Why? Well, you know, it's so interesting. So I've had Ben on my show many, many times. I've been on his show many, many times. And, you know, the people that say that they're tolerant, you know what they say about us as we're when we do in those shows? They say that Ben is a homophobe, even though he's in my studios in my house where I live with my husband, and Ben has been here many times and met my husband many times. They say Ben's a homophobe and Ruben's a self-hating gay for having that conversation. Mm. And these are the supposed these are the supposedly tolerant people. Now Ben and I have huge political disagreements. It's not even just on the things you mentioned. He's he's pro death penalty. I'm against the death penalty. Yes. Uh, we could go we could go through a series. Of things, and as you point out, we've debated abortion again. This is like the this is the big one for conservatives more than anything else, and yet we can do it respectfully. And the rest of it, I, the best example of of this sort of hysteria around open conversation that I can give you is one night. I think it was the it might have been actually the last show that we did as part of the Jordan Peterson tour uh, in the United States. We, I had Ben and Jordan in the studio, and and it was a the video I think has five or six million views. We had a wonderful I'm conversation. Yeah. I'm well, there you go. It, was, <laughs> it, was one of the, it really was one of the best moments. Yes. I remember, I truly remember thinking during that interview, I thought this is, this is exactly why I do what I do. It really was a wonderful conversation. And by the way, you know, I, it, my role in that is more the tennis referee so that when the ball goes out of bounds, somebody has to do something. So if an idea gets too crazy where I feel that the average person just has no idea what's going on because I think I can play that role. I think I, I think what I can do is take very complex ideas, and I think I can distill them into something that the you, average person you, can you, do. You do it adroitly, wonderfully. Well, well, thank you for that. Um, but, but obviously, Jordan and Ben, you know, they come at things. Ben talks very fast. Jordan <laughs> is dropping. Jordan drops a million historical references, right? So, so I was just sort of, you know, I'm the referee there, making sure that the whole thing doesn't go completely out of control. But what happened was that night, Jordan was doing uh, one of his. 12 Rules for Life tour shows, and I had been on tour with him. And I said to Ben, I said, hey, you know, why don't you come on stage? Why don't I bring you out uh, on as a surprise? And, you know, you'll, you'll say a couple things, you'll get a couple laughs, and then get out of there. And he said, okay, I'll do it. So now we go to the Orpheum in LA. It's a beautiful theater, about 3,000 people. It's the same theater, by the way, that we kicked the entire tour off just about a year before. And, you know, it's L.A., so all the agents are there. You know, mm -hmm. there's a, there's an extra, extra feeling of excitement. Sure. Um, and I, I wore my sharpest suit and, you know, I was feeling good. I get out there. The crowd is absolutely electric. Uh, they're just on me for every joke. Every laugh is just perfect. And then I bring out our surprise guest, Ben Shapiro. And I bring out Ben and he gets a huge ovation. And as you may know, Ben and I have 
uh, talked about the gay wedding cake issue. And <laughs> yes, Ben's, yes. Ben's feeling is yeah. that, that he has a religious belief that is against same-sex marriage, so that it's become a running joke between us, actually. He would not bake me a gay wedding cake. And as I have said to Ben many times, I wouldn't want him to bake me a gay wedding cake. Uh, you know, I have no indication that he's a good baker. I'm not kosher. Uh, you know, it's like there's a million reasons that I wouldn't want him to do it. And I would ne- and I certainly would never force him to do it. So what Ben did that was very funny, we set it up beforehand. We had Ben walk out with a cupcake. He hands me a cu- he hands me a cupcake. He, you know, we say this funny thing that we'll eat the cupcake together. Then he does a little funny impression to Jordan. He leaves. Audience goes crazy. Now, in that room, I am telling you, the amount of love mm. and tolerance and joy in that room was off the charts. You could, you could genuinely feel it. And I then imagine. I look on Twitter, yeah. then I look on Twitter, and I see a bunch of people have you know, put up the video and put up pictures, and suddenly, again, all of the, again, quote-unquote uh, quote tolerant, decent lefties, they're saying how it's the self-hating gay, it's the homophobe, and they're calling Jordan Peterson a white supremacist or whatever they call him. And I thought, man, this is such an example of almost everything I have, I have lived my life about, because I was in a room with real people experiencing real tolerance, experiencing a, a, a joy in people that, that view the world differently coming together. And 3,000 people loved every second of it. And yet you put the video out there. And then the people who purport to be the anti-racists or the anti-homophobes or whatever, they, can, they feel they have license to call the gay guy a self-hating gay and the, and the religious person a bigot and the rest of it. And, and it's a perfect example of how out of whack things have gotten. I'm thinking in particular of a guest we had earlier this year, or last year actually, uh, Debbie Melnick, who was a, and still is, a very left, self-declared, hard leftist in her political outlook, Canadian um, filmmaker. And she did, you may remember, a documentary on Michael Moore called Manufacturing Dissent. So we had her on the program. And as a result of her simply being on the program, uh, I lost a good friend in L.A., And my own brother wouldn't listen to the program and said that it was propagandistic and what have you. And I'm just saying, look, this this is a woman on the left, cardinal voice for leftist issues. But and, and, and when she was on the program, she says, Alan, I can't be more left or words to that effect. And yet she was derided and attacked uh, by her own. I, I, I don't understand it within the movement of those on the left at all. I mean, I don't know what the motivation is unless it's fear. Well, I think I can explain a little bit of, of why it happened. What you're explaining right there, there are countless examples of this. You know, the, the Brett Weinstein story at Evergreen State, a lifelong progressive lefty at, at what was thought of as the most progressive or second most progressive college in the United States. He protested racism there, got called a racist, and he literally was chased off campus. And he and his wife, Heather Hying, who's also a biology professor, they had to settle with the university for 500 grand, which sounds like a lot of money, but for two tenured professors, you know, with 40-year careers, hopefully, in front of them, or 30-year careers, it's, it's actually not much. So there's been many examples of this. And I do think there's a specific psychological reason, and, and this is it. On the right, if you're a conservative or a libertarian or an old-school liberal, you, from an American perspective, you believe in individual rights, meaning that you want everyone to have the same rights. It doesn't matter if you're black or white or gay or straight or male or female or trans or whatever it is. You believe that if you're legally here, you should have equal rights. And that's underguarded uh, by the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights. That's a, that's a basic premise that pretty much every conservative and right-leaning person believes. Something strange has happened on the left. On the left, it is impossible, I think, to find a guiding principle that brings these people together. So in other words, what brings Joe Biden and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris together, other than they all like government. Because you can't say that they all like individual rights. We know they don't like individual rights. They like group rights. Um, They like the idea that if you are this, then you should get this, and we should take from some and give to others. A a very obvious example of this I can give is something like $15 minimum wage. Bernie says we should have $15 minimum wage. Now, Bernie has never run a business. I run a small business here. I pay my guys extremely well, and I pay all of their health insurance, every dime of it, because I want them to be appreciated so that they will work hard for me and help my business flourish. That's, That's what I believe competition is. That's what I believe American spirit is, and that's why I do it. 
Now, Bernie comes in, who's never run anything, and says $15 minimum wage. Now, he's not an economist. He's never run anything. But he makes up a number because he feels – this is the key part. He feels it is moral to say that number. And you know what happens two weeks later? Rashida Tlaib, one of the uh, the far-left congresswomen, she says $20 minimum wage. And then it's like, oh, well, he just made up 15 so she made up 20 and that 20 is higher than 15 so she's kind of more moral than him. And then why wouldn't someone come down the pike and say 35 or 75 or some other number? So because they lack a unifying principle, other than the love of government, what they always try to do is out-government themselves. If they feel something, their answer is government. And it's not just that it's a non-unifying principle, it leaves you always looking for more power. And when you don't get that power, what do you do? You call everyone else a racist and a bigot and, and all of those things. So I do think that there is a, that's a philosophical reasoning for it. And I think that the psychological reasoning for it is that in many ways, the, the left has abandoned reason. They think that the world should be as they wish it to be because they wish it to be. And on the right, the people say, you know, the world is sort of a messy thing, and I just kind of have to figure out how to live within it. Uh, but the left is trying to reconstruct the world in, a, in the way that they want. And I find that deeply, deeply dangerous. You were honored recently by being invited to speak at Oxford, uh, the Oxford Union. And it was, uh, to use the phrase kosher, uh, civil, <laughs> interesting, engaging. But in contrast, you also went to the University of New Hampshire. I'm just going to play no, a little audio montage of your experience there. I can see some interesting diversity. The left loves diversity, meaning the color of your skin and your sexuality and all that stuff and your gender. And that's all, that's all well and fine, but that's actually not the diversity that matters. The diversity that matters is what's going on in your head. What do you actually think, right? I mean, imagine if I was to look at you guys and I can think, all right, white guy there, he must think that. Black guy there, he must think that. Asian girl there, she must think that. That actually is the essence of prejudice which means to prejudge. And if you look at someone and think that you know what they should think because of the color of their skin or their sexuality or anything else, you actually are the one that is acting bigoted. Whatever you believe, if you fight for it honestly and, and using your mind and your faculties and not because you silenced people or because you pulled fire alarms or called in bomb threats, if you fight for... Yeah, uh, all right, I agree. Black lives do matter. Tate, I, I'm with you. Yeah, I'm with you. Solidarity against hate. I don't think you should hate anyone based on their sexuality or their. I, oh Lord. Yeah. Do you have a question? Uh, you did at one point say graciously that you had, in, had enjoyed it the evening, um, even though you were being polite. Had you really enjoyed that evening? That's a great question. I, I, I can't imagine I, I, you did. Allow me to just quickly say one thing about Oxford Union, which was that was truly, truly perhaps the greatest uh, you know, professional thrill of, of my life up until that point. You know, I think getting this book out has sort of taken the cake on everything else. Sure. But but sure. that that moment, that moment speaking to those young people and, and being invited, I had never been to Oxford before. And, and just the richness of that community and the history and the, the desire to learn, oh, it was just it was just wonderful. And by the way, at, at Oxford, uh, they did ask me plenty of very difficult questions, but they asked them quite respectfully and everything yes. else. Uh, as to what happened at New Hampshire, you know, um, so did I enjoy it? Did I truly enjoy it? You know, believe it or not, believe it or not, I mostly did. Uh, you know, if you're going to be somebody I believe you. your thoughts. It, well, because if you're going to be somebody that puts your thoughts out there and, and you do it honestly and earnestly, of course, you're going to get pushback. Now, of course, at the same time, that's no defense of the behavior of any of these students. And by the way, for a little subtext, you know, that event was supposed to be held on campus for about 300 students. It was sold out. The campus a few hours before said we can't secure the event because of death threats and the rest of it. So they moved the event from a 300 person room on campus to a 6,000 seat hockey rink. Yes. So I'm, I'm, I'm talking in front of 300 people in a 6,000 seat room, which, you know, that, that's a comedian's worst nightmare or any public person. It's like, you don't want empty seats. So the whole thing was very bizarre. But what I tried to do was 
you know, look, I kept saying to them, if you respect my free speech, I'll respect yours. I will take all of the difficult questions. You may have noted a moment there where there was some sort of mindless chanting and yes. where they set their phones to interrupt at different points. And I and I got and clanging bottles with nails or changing it. Continually. Oh, yeah. They, they, had, they had changed and nails and noisemakers and all of this stuff. And there was a moment, though, where where two young people were chanting and they just repeat phrases over and over. But I but I kept saying to them. Looking me, I kept saying, look me in the eye, look me in the eye like I'm a human and let's talk about it. But they wouldn't even look me in the eye. And I felt that that, you know, that has a little twang of something scary there, because then it's like they don't want to see you as a human. So when I say I enjoyed it, when I say I enjoyed it, look, as long as as long as nothing violent happens. Um, I do enjoy the debate, but that's not to say that there haven't been times. And and that was there was one person in the back that I was giving me this look that sort of felt you can just sort of feel it sometimes like this could get out of control. When I've seen that, when I've seen that sort of thing, you know, of course, nobody enjoys that. Even Jordan Peterson, who, you know, has spoke to more people than anyone in the last couple of years, he would say to me and he would say it publicly, too, that he doesn't enjoy the fight. It's not the fight that he enjoys. He enjoys sharing his ideas. When the fight comes to you, you then have to decide what kind of person are you? Are, the, are you the kind of person that stands up or are you the person that, sh- that you know, shies away? And now I, that, I refuse that to be brings, that person. That brings me to Dennis Miller, uh, who was on the Rubin Report pretty recently. And mm-hmm. more or less, he indicated that he's pretty much tired. He's, he's finished mm-hmm. with trying to reason with people. Can you envision yourself getting there? Ah, you know, I'm so glad you brought that up because that was my last interview before the lockdown. So it's the last in-person interview. And I, I really, really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed Dennis for a long time. We have a similar political evolution because, you know, he was a lefty and, and now he's Saturday on the Night right. Live and right, yeah. Saturday Night Live and, and a brilliant comic and all of that stuff. You know, I was actually quite um, moved when he said it, but I... I this idea that, you know, you, you do get tired at some point, you know, I'm guessing he's probably in his maybe early 60s, late yes, 50s. Probably, yeah. And, you know, he's he's had success and, you know, he's got money in the bank and he does his radio show. He wants to and fish. He's, he's a, he, yeah, that's it. He wants to fish. He doesn't want to be in it all the time, deal with the hate. Um, you know, at some level, I, I when I say moved, I mean that I admire it. I admire the honesty of saying, hey, I did it for 20 years. And then he basically said that to me. He said, you know, I did it for a while and now now it's your turn. And I guess really what you're asking me is, would I ever hand over the keys to somebody else? And and I hope I will know when to do it. You know, like, I, I don't want to be in the fight always. I, I do hope that I that I can add something that will, uh, instead of adding kerosene to the fight, I hope that I'm adding some water to put out the embers. Um, but, you know, I don't know that when I'm 75, I'm going to want to be fighting things the way I am now. I think that's, but do that's you think, just part of life. Do you think, Dave, that you'll have to? Or do you have any degree of optimism? And you surely must, or you wouldn't be doing what you're doing. Hope, uh, but but almost tangible optimism, just, you know, a, a, a hands width away that things you will know, turn. You I, I describe myself as a world-weary optimist, because I think more than anything else, I consider myself a realist. I, I, it's not that I envision we can create a great world, but I think we can do the best we can. And that means that sometimes it will be great. And we've had great runs in America. The UK has had great runs. The, the worldwide community has great runs. And then there's been times of, of deep darkness. Um, and I think it's our job as humans to make sure that, that we're, we're pushing away the darkness as much as possible. And, you know, obviously I lay out my political and philosophical beliefs to, to hopefully get us there. Um, but, I, but yes, I could not do this if I was not an optimist. You know, how could I possibly get up in the morning, you know, deal with X amount of hate, I think more than anything else, what would be the purpose of getting up and doing what I do every day if I didn't think that my words could change things? And and to that end, you know, I get a tremendous amount of email and, and messages from people literally all over the world, uh, you know, saying that, you know, they watched my show and they started thinking about things a little bit differently or they found Jordan Peterson or they found Ben Shapiro. Well, your, and, show, your, you know, show, your show is yeah. transformative. There's no question about it. I mean, you know, you wouldn't be garnering the audience that you have. You wouldn't have a bestseller. Um, I'm 
quite convinced that it's not all people who have been conservative or even uh, in the middle who are buying these. I think there are people who are buying your book now under, you know, paper wraps. I mean, now probably they're being delivered because of the circumstances that we're in. But um, I'm sure that that's a major significant part of your audience. We're speaking with Dave Rubin. You're listening to Watching America. Dave Rubin is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Don't Burn This Book, which, as I described at the outset, is a white cover with black writing and a diagonal, non-struck match. Let me ask you a question. Uh, As an author, did you have any say on the uh, design of the jacket? I love the design of the jacket. I really do. But uh, did did they include you? So rarely do they with authors. Yeah, you know, we we negotiated a little bit right at the top that I wanted some say. I, I didn't get final say, but I wanted some say. And we went through truly probably 40 or 50 iterations of of the cover. I I love the cover. I you know, people seem to be really enjoying it's it. You striking. know, it's dark. Yeah. yeah, it's well that that's the word really. It's striking. It's stark. It's striking. It's forward. It's clean. It's clear. And my my real hope was, you know, the funny thing, you know, I I titled it Don't Burn This Book and I, I didn't expect that, you know, people were going to treat this like 1941 Germany, where there would be a bonfire and we'd be actually <laughs> burning books, right? But, you know, there is a version of book burning that does exist right now, and we're getting hit by it. There yeah. has been a massive, massive coordinated campaign from Reddit and some of these underbelly internet sites to crush our Amazon reviews and go after the online retailers and attack people who post about the book. And in essence, the the people that are doing that are proving the very thesis of the book. Because what I lay out in this book, whether you agree with me on every principle uh, or every policy or not, is actually irrelevant. What I lay out in this book, I think, are very common sense uh, principles that we can agree or disagree on. So when you burn a book, I mean, look, why did the Nazis burn books? Well, they didn't want ideas counter to their ideology to get out. And, and the same people today who mob Amazon to attack the servers and attack the comments and the reviews or who do that to other online retailers, what are they doing? Well, they're not physically burning the book, but I would say it's a modern book burning or a digital book burning because they don't want those ideas out. And, and unfortunately, that is much more of a problem on the left than on the right. I don't know many books being written by prominent lefties that suddenly the right is just you know attacking the books, what, what they do actually is they just ignore it, which yes. is what you're supposed to do in a free society. Yeah. You are a major entity on YouTube, but we know that there are persons who are rather disturbed about how they've been in formulas dismissed and reduced their significance when they actually deserve more uh, recognition and an audience than they're allowed to have. Do you worry about your platform on YouTube? Oh, of course I worry about it. I mean, it's one of, in terms of my business, it's in many ways my number one concern. I mean, the, I would like in YouTube and Twitter and really anything that any of us are on that are related to big tech, you know, we're renting space. In effect, we're renting apartments from landlords that have no problem ripping up the lease at any moment and, and kicking you out on the street. Candace and owns Twitter. A, and look, Twitter, you know, in many ways, Twitter is the most bizarre because Twitter, although it's not specifically for content other than tweets, and of course you can put videos and memes on there, Twitter, you know, as of January 1st, uh, 2020, I'm not sure if this applied to the UK, but at least from an American perspective, they put shadow banning in the terms of service. That means that they tell you in their terms of service that none of us read, we all just click accept because we're not walking around with lawyers with us all day long, sure. uh, that they can, they can either boost certain tweets or hide other tweets. So what in, in effect, we pretend it's the, the public square, but the rules have been rigged and we're all playing it. This would be like if you were watching, um, you know, you were watching a basketball game and you knew that one team had uh, different rules than the other team. And then the score comes in and the team loses and you go, Oh, well, I, I don't know why they lost. That that seems very odd to me. Yeah, you they made the comparison. You, you made the comparison before with the Harlem Globetrotters versus the, yeah. the Washington Generals. It's a rigged game. Right. It's a rigged game. We all know it's rigged, and we all keep playing, expecting a different result. Which, by the way, if you keep doing something over and over, uh, expecting a different result, that's also, I think, what the definition of crazy is. Um, so I, I'm deeply concerned about all of this, as you know. Uh, you know, I started a tech company about a year ago called Locals.com, and what we do is we build digital homes for creators. So I'm not trying to replace YouTube. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to replace Twitter or Facebook. 
But what we all need are digital homes, meaning you need a place, and everyone needs this, whether you're a major creator or a star or just a regular person who wants a place to put your stuff online. We create digital homes so you can upload video and audio and pictures. Uh, you can build out your own community. We have an unmanipulated news feed. You own all of it. You set all the rules uh, in your own community so that if someone comes into my community and I don't want them there, I can kick them out the same way I don't. I believe in free speech, but I don't invite everyone into my home to say whatever they want. Sure. So what I, what I liken it to really is that we're trying to create a slightly more mature internet, an internet 3.0 where you're going to have to have a little skin in the game. We're doing it by, by paywall. Every creator can set whatever uh, financial amount that the, uh, their users have to pay. I let people pay whatever they want. And by, by actually just by putting any paywall there, you eliminate most of the trolls. So there's almost no trolls. There's, there's definitely no bots. But more than anything else, we're securing your properties. That's the thing. Because we, don't, we need digital homes. And what we have are digital rentals with landlords that frankly don't like us very much. If somebody wants to get involved and wants to have that real estate on your platform, what do they need to do? They can go to Locals.com. We've got a great setup. You can set up your account in about five minutes. You connect it to your Stripe, and, and it's yours. You can modify it the way you want. You can set your own rules, welcome people to come and talk whatever they, whatever they want to talk about. And, and that's the beauty because it's not – you know, Twitter is a giant platform that everyone's on at once. What we're building are homes. Now, you can connect your homes with other homes to build communities, but if you just want to have your thing and it's just yours for, for your fans or your family or your friends or your business, then, then just have your thing. And, you know, our, our basic policy, as long as you're not breaking the laws of the United States, you, you can be on there. Dave Rubin, you have honored me and my audience by being a part of Watching America. And I hope that the next time you have a tomb out or just anything that you want to publish or talk about, that you won't hesitate to call up old Alan Campbell here and uh, be a part of Watching America again. Thank you, sir, for your kindness, your magnanimous attitude and your wit and charm. Well, Alan, it was truly a pleasure. You're thoughtful and decent, and that's all I ask of, of any of the people that I talk to. And, you know, hopefully... When, when all this craziness with the lockdown ends, you know, we're, we're going to do the American tour and then we were working on the, the UK tour. So I'd love to take you out for some fish and chips or <laughs> That'd wh- be whatever, whatever you guys are doing, we'll, we'll do something. <laughs> well, I'm going to close by saying the same thing that I said to Peter Bogosian and we, we both started to laugh because I really said it in innocence, not realizing it at the moment the significance of it. But I hope that you will take this in the right spirit. I just want to say Dave Rubin, good friend, atheist, God bless. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razor Light. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni and CEO Bert Schmidt. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for your kind and considerate contributions that make this show possible. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.